October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 28, European Ellen. Last time, we talked about how Ellen White coped with her husband's death, using her grieving period to focus on her writing. She also helped Battle Creek College get back on its feet, celebrating its reopening under the auspices of W.H. Littlejohn. We also followed our man Loughborough all the way to England, where, as usual, he threw himself into his work. We wrapped up our last episode by talking about the death of J.N. Andrews in Switzerland in 1883, and I guess we also gave some Ellen White Christmas advice, so we were busy. And it's about to get busier. The foundation laid in the 1870s for the medical system, the educational system, really starts complicating our narrative as we get further into the 1880s and 1890s. The church really starts to grow exponentially by this point. Let me tell you what I mean. In 1870, Adventist membership stood at about 5,000. Ten years later, in 1880, it was 15,000. Ten years later, in 1890, it was 30,000. Ten years later, in 1900, it was 75,000 members. So it's doubling and tripling every decade during this period. And managing this level of growth is hard, And what makes it even harder is that the growth isn't localized to a small region of America anymore. This isn't the Adventist church of the Civil War. Adventists are sprouting up all across the world, and now the church has to manage medical institutions as well as schools. Keep this in the back of your mind, because this growth and this complexity is going to continue to be the backdrop of our story for the rest of this podcast. Okay. Now back to the 1880s. We pick up our story back at the 1883 General Conference, where George Ida Butler, General Conference President, was invited to Europe. He would leave from February to June 1884, and his biggest role there was presiding over the European Missionary Council in Switzerland. The General Conference had always sent a delegate to look after these conferences in Europe, but now the big man himself was coming. And when you step back and remember how Adventists even got to Europe, it's really remarkable. You'll recall that M.B. Tchaikovsky runs off on his own and starts preaching there. The church hears virtually nothing from him and presumes that he left the church. Lo and behold, a letter arrives from a group of people in Switzerland essentially asking, Hey, are you guys our parents? And the church is like, Oh, what? I swear I've never been to Europe in my life. How did this happen? Okay, well, maybe that's a little dramatic, but you get the point, right? It was like finding out that these spiritual children halfway around the world belonged to you. So Andrews was dispatched in 1874 to rush over there and take care of these kids. He didn't know French. He wasn't a global citizen or whatever. It wasn't like sending Thomas Jefferson to France. He had to figure it out when he got there. His work was slow and steady. And somehow in 10 years, we're at this place where there are many general conferences in Europe with delegates from all sorts of countries coming together to repeat the Adventist experiment in a European context. It solves a question no one had even thought to ask. Is Adventism exportable at this point? Was this a unique American phenomenon or can this thing work anywhere? 
That's a question I think we would have today, but they didn't ask that question because there was no doubt in their mind that it would work. And it did. Adventists were popping up everywhere in Europe, and they did it with fewer resources than the American church had. So when Butler gets there, he's astounded at what he sees. Delegates from the Central European countries, from England, from Italy, from Romania even, and from Scandinavia, Norway, and Sweden were present. The General Conference has only sent over a handful of people and barely any money in the past 10 years. How is this possible? About 125 Adventists, which includes about three-quarters of all the believers in Switzerland, attended the meetings in the city of Bien. Bien citizens were, and still are, about evenly divided between French speakers and German speakers, making it a wonderfully symbolic venue for the unique linguistic complexities of work in Europe. For his part, Butler couldn't understand a word of French, German, Italian, or what have you, but he watched their motions. He saw passion in some of the speakers. He saw tears in the eyes of the others. He didn't need words to understand what was going on. The European delegates voted to create the Swiss Conference, now the Third European Conference. Butler was excited. It was a profound intercultural moment for him. He wrote, quote, Thus the cause moves on step by step, and conference after conference is added to the one body. We are one people, no matter what our language, and the same general characteristics are seen in all. We feel the same love and interest in the cause here that we do in our own land. The next big step in Europe is to get the publishing infrastructure up and running, just like the church in America had to do. For that, the believers in Europe wanted help, so they officially invited Willie and Ellen White to come visit. Butler promised to take the invitation to the General Conference session back in America and see what they had to say. When Butler returned, he had to deal with something else, though, that was a little bit more pressing. An Adventist minister by the name of D.M. Canwright was coming back into the fold. And if you're an Adventist or know something about Adventist history, that name raises a lot of flags. We're not going to get into all of that right now, but we will spend a little bit of time on Canwright. We've mentioned him a few times before, and he was a brilliant debater, brilliant, innovative pastor. And the story goes that he was brought into the church by James White. And when James learned that Canwright wanted to be a preacher, James gave him a set of pictures and charts about Bible prophecy and said, bring these back when you failed. Canwright told James that he's not getting them back, and he was right. All right, so that was Canwright. But the problem with Canwright was that he was really high maintenance. He would burn bright for a while and be on fire, and then he would quit and run from the church for a year or two or whatever. He would quarrel with James and Ellen White because he could be very, very sensitive. He wrestled from time to time with the idea that Ellen White was a prophet. And then he would apologize and come back for a while, and often with a huge apology in the review, Kenwright had reconciled with James and Ellen shortly before James's death, and then he lapsed for a little while and did his own thing, trying out his hand as a farmer. Now, 1884 was one of those years that he returned once again, with another article apologizing in the review. And when you read Canwright, you immediately see his gifts for logic and communication. 
He freely admitted that he wrestled with depression, that he wrestled with some of Ellen White's strongly worded letters that she would send to someone who was erring. But Canwright wasn't high maintenance because he lacked commitment. He strikes you as someone who always struggled to find some kind of peace in life. Watching his nearly 30-year career as an Adventist preacher is like watching someone who has a hard time sleeping. He tosses and turns, then falls asleep for an hour before waking up again and tossing around some more, always trying to get comfortable. In the end, he'll become one of Adventism's greatest foes of the 19th century. He tried to sleep in the Adventist bed and, for whatever reason, could never find the same comforts others found. Exasperated, he would devote the rest of his life to explaining why the bed was broken, why Adventism didn't work for him. And when Canwright will finally abandon the church completely in a few years, it was a crisis of sorts. The leaders of the church had to strap on their armor and defend themselves. And Canwright's legacy endures even today, where his criticisms still populate the internet and are repeated by modern critics of the church. But there's room to feel for Canwright, too. He's not just the arch-critic of the Adventist church. He's a man who struggled in his own life to find peace and, as far as I can tell, never quite found it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back from Europe, Butler attended the Michigan camp meeting and met with Canwright to convince him to return. They had a long talk about things. Canwright, again, resolved to return to the fold. He confessed that he had doubts and that's why he went into farming, but as he, I guess, stood there and farmed, one doubt led to another, led to another, led to another, to the point where the more he sat thinking about them, the more they popped up, and he realized this isn't the way I want to go. So Canwright explained his objections to Butler, and Butler, for his part, explained the other side of the coin to Canwright. And Canwright, to his credit, realized that he had been a little unfair, especially toward Ellen White. He said, quote, All my hard feelings toward Sister White vanished in a moment, and I felt a tender love toward her, end quote. He spent a lot of time in his article apologizing in the review, analyzing his past. This is what he said, I deeply feel that in my past labors I have lacked in spirituality, humility, and a close walk with God. I have often been too hasty and harsh in my labors. I will never rest till all this is changed and I become a tender-hearted, devoted shepherd of the flock. I will submit to any humiliation, shame, or cross that will fit me to win souls to Christ. End quote. Now, there's a lot of I statements in there. I deeply felt, I have often, I will never rest, I will submit. And you really get this impression that Canwright was a man at war within himself, as many people are. But he concluded his article with a very mature point. He said, A faith that cannot stand under some difficulties, that cannot hold on to great facts, and truths against some apparent objections that cannot remember bright experiences while going through dark places, such a faith is not a reliable one, end quote. I mean, that's really a great article. It's spiritually mature advice. It's really great spiritually mature advice that we wish Canwright would have remembered just a few years later. But at this moment in 1884, Canwright returned to the fold. Ellen White was exuberant because Canwright had been saved. 
And not only can write, but Uriah Smith was back in harmony again. Now, he didn't go off farming and, and abandon the church, but he had been on the wrong side of the Battle Creek College issue. And Ellen White rejoiced that he had finally realized his mistake. And this led to a joyful mood among Adventists in 1884. Now, Ellen had no idea how many headaches that both Canwright and Uriah Smith would cause in a few years, but no matter. With the home front settled, this certainly helped ease Ellen's mind when she heard Butler's report during the 1884 General Conference that Ellen and Willie were officially invited to go to Europe. Now, Ellen was very reluctant to go. Now, I would have bet that if she were having the problem she would later have with Uriah Smith and Canwright, she likely would have stayed at home to deal with them. But things were peaceful, everyone seemed to be getting along, and so maybe she could go. There were a few other concerns as well, one of which was her age. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when we're talking about Ellen White in 1884, we're talking about a 57-year-old woman She's not the young teenager she was when this movement started in the 1840s. And traveling from California to Switzerland in the 1800s was not the most comfortable thing. When she eventually did get going, she ended up spending a night on a train sleeping on top of her luggage. It would be a long, expensive, and uncomfortable trip. Plus, she had really been feeling under the weather lately and hated, hated the idea of sailing over the ocean. Ellen also had reservations about why she would even be needed there. While she rejoiced at the spread of the message in Europe, America was still where things were happening. It's where the General Conference was located. There were always new fields and new states. There was so much going on in America, new hospitals and schools among them, that it seemed like going to a corner of the world where not as much was happening. Besides, she didn't speak French or German or Italian. She didn't know anyone in Europe except the few missionaries the church had sent. Couldn't she be just as effective in writing letters and sending her books? Her hand was forced a little bit on this issue when she learned that a preacher in Illinois had translated some of the attacks against Ellen White and Seventh-day Adventists into French and then sent them back to Europe to be disseminated, which raised questions in the minds of some of the believers there. They had heard about this prophet in America. Maybe they had read some of her writings, but then they didn't really know how to deal with these critiques that were appearing in French. So, maybe she could go to England, maybe she could go to Switzerland and start sorting some of this out. Above all, Ellen White wanted a clear sign from God. This was a moment where she needed her decisive husband to pray for her, give her his wise counsel, and he was gone. Ellen wrote, quote, I longed for human help, one who had a firm hold from above and whose faith would stimulate mine, end quote. She had grieved for James, but there were still situations like these where her muscle reflex was to automatically reach for him, and James was gone. But she discovered she would find a little bit of him in her son. About this time, she wrote, Willie visited from Oakland, and his words were full of courage and faith. 
He bade me look to the past when, under the most forbidding circumstances, I had moved out in faith according to the best light I had. Quote. Willie White would never be James White. But in this moment, he did what his father always did, encourage and strengthen his mother. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of doubt. It doesn't mean that there was a bright cloud overhead and an angel choir singing above. For eight months, Ellen White wrestled with the invitation to go to Europe, and she never got a clear sign. And without a clear sign, she thought it wise to rely upon the recommendation of the General Conference and to go. So that July, 1885, Ellen began the 7,000-mile journey from California to Europe. Though the train could make it to the East Coast in about 7 to 10 days, it took Ellen White a month. She stopped to speak. She wrote letters. She had lunch with Edson in Battle Creek before visiting James's grave. She arrived in Boston at last in early August, did some last-minute shopping, and finally boarded the ship. The ship was the SS Cephalonia, named after a Greek island, which was named after a Greek hero, etc., the steamship was just three years old, about 430 feet long by 50 feet wide. It wasn't an overly impressive ship, but it was a beautiful foretaste of things to come. The Cephalonia was run by the Cunard Line, that fabled British shipping colossus that would go on to build the Lusitania, the famous ship whose sinking at the hands of a German U-boat would drag America into the First World War. Steamships like the Cephalonia, built in the early 1880s, we're at a transitional moment in shipbuilding. Companies began to build larger, faster, more comfortable ships, competing for the coveted Blue Ribbon, which, more often than not, stayed with the Cunard Line. When Ellen White was invited to go to Europe, the RMS Umbria was steaming across the Atlantic on her maiden voyage, breaking records for speed and luxury. It was an exciting time for transatlantic travel. Ellen White thoroughly enjoyed her 11-day cruise across the Atlantic on the Cephalonia. That record, by the way, would be cut in half by the Umbria in just a few years, showing how quickly ships were improving. In particular, Ellen was impressed with the selection of food. She had recently had a stay at the health retreat in California and ate meat again, which didn't agree with her at all. So she resolved once more to not eat meat if she could help it. And one wouldn't expect many culinary options on a ship at this time, but she was delighted to find plenty of vegetarian options for her, including graham bread. Yay. The trip was smooth, too. No seasickness, and she was able to get plenty of writing done, over a hundred pages, actually. Plus, her room was spacious enough for her to fit her entire entourage inside and turn it into a floating Adventist church. Arriving in Liverpool, England, she decided to make the most of it and go to the beach. But this being England, she found it cold and windy. She spoke to thousands in England, with her biggest crowds coming out to hear her talk about her favorite theme, temperance. The temperance work wasn't as far along in England as it was in America, but it was still an exciting, growing movement. She did the tourist thing, too. She visited Roman ruins one day. She even allowed a Seventh-day Baptist pastor to take her to the British Museum for a couple of hours, which she realized was not enough time in the British Museum. After a couple of weeks in England, she crossed the channel and took a train for Switzerland. When she saw the old castles up in the mountains, 
her first thought was, I wonder if the reformers saw these same mountains. Soon it was down the business. She attended a meeting of the newly minted Swiss conference. The Swiss conference had 224 members spread among 10 churches, so about 22 members per church on average. And there was one pastor for these churches, so I guess he could brag that he pastored a congregation of 224 members, for what that's worth. Ellen's big challenge was speaking with a translator, something she had never done before. She thought it was kind of awkward at first, as most people do, but eventually grew to appreciate having the extra few seconds to think while the translators repeated what she said in three languages. After a meeting of the Swiss Conference, the third meeting of the European Missionary Council began, which Willie White called a miniature general conference, but which in my imagination is more like the Council of Elrond for those Tolkien fans out there. The 30 or so delegates were from the span of Europe, from England to Romania, from Wales to Norway, from Italy to Denmark. The schedule every day was intense, beginning with a devotional at 5.30 in the morning, which, yeah, woo, no. Willie suggested they add some time for Bible study in between business, which they did. A large part of the council was discussing methods, what worked, what didn't work, the differences of culture and linguistic challenges. And there were some thorny problems beside, like what should Adventists do about compulsory military service? The American government had made it relatively easy for Adventists to avoid a draft during the Civil War, but that wasn't the case in Europe. Oh, and what should Adventists do about mandatory school six days a week? which meant school on Sabbath. In many ways, these problems are still being dealt with today in some countries. Ellen's job wasn't done when the council finally ended after two weeks. While they had her in Europe, the Adventists there were going to make the best use of her. So she rounded out her trip by traveling through Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. And as she went through Germany, the history of the Reformation just came alive for her. Honestly, Ellen White wasn't an expert in these things, but for those few who traveled with her, it must have seemed like a Reformation tour through Europe. She found Copenhagen to be very beautiful, but decried its libertine population. On the plus side, she enjoyed a wax museum at the old Panopticon building, which has sadly since burned down. For whatever reason, Stockholm, Sweden reminded Ellen White most of San Francisco. She traveled to see the tomb of Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king who helped protect Protestantism in his country way back when. It must have been surreal for Ellen, who had finished writing The Great Controversy the year before, to see all of the places and people that she had written about in her history of Christianity. For Willie, too, there was a special interest. He had been at general conference meetings where he voted that these books and those tracts should be translated for use in Europe, and now he could see them being used firsthand. Her trip to Norway saw the largest crowd she would ever see in Europe. 1,600 people gathered to listen to her talk about temperance reform. One particular detail really affected her. Someone had placed an American flag as a canopy of sorts over her head while she spoke, which Ellen appreciated deeply. Surrounded for months by other cultures, other languages, other food, it was a little touch that reminded her of home. Some of the most prominent citizens were present, and Ellen hit her mark, challenging the crowd to be like Daniel. 
Ellen left for Europe having no idea how long she would spend there, but it ended up being two years, from 1885 to 1887. And while she was there, she said that she was in the very best of health. She ate good. The work in Europe was going well. We're going to leave Ellen in Europe for now, and we'll see that she gets home safely next time. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to the storm clouds that are gathering back in America. When Ellen left, everything seemed to be going fine. But there's that can-right thing. There's Uriah Smith and Butler. And then there's two young preachers that are really causing a stir. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>